Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to this panel. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Yugger and Turrbal people, and to pay my respect to elders past and present. Uh, today, the panel is a little bit different to planned. <laughs> so apologies anyone who came especially to see Kevin O'Brien or Liz Brogdon. Unfortunately, uh, neither of them were able to attend. But Tim, very kindly, has stepped in. And Shari Larson, who's one of the um, writers for the catalogue, has also stepped in. So it will be perhaps a little less architectural than uh, originally planned and substantially less design. But Andrew can step up for architecture and design. So to start, to kick off the panel, some of you may be aware Andrew wrote a, or edited, I should say, a book called Sweat, the Subtropical Imaginary, which uh, Tim references in the catalogue, which I hope you all have already bought and are gripping in your hot little hands. Andrew's book uh, broached the issue of the subtropical as something that had an influence on art and architecture, and I'd like him to speak to that moment and what Tim refers to as the climate positive approach, whether you refute that or and take it on. Thanks, Tim. Um, Sweat came about, it wasn't really thinking in terms of, uh, well, Tim calls it heat positivity. I never thought of it in that way, but 10 years later, I guess you can... The original impetus was very similar to what Tim mentioned a bit earlier, if you're here to hear his remarks about the launch of the book. It was, uh, particularly someone coming from Sydney, I always noticed that the cultural evaluation was very much... Um, uh, sort of almost apologising for being in Brisbane and that, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly Melbourne, you'd be in the best place in the world. And of course, you'd always see that that was uh, culturally privileged. And of course, Tim's gone there now too, so he's part of that. <laughs> yeah, so he's part of that problem, as you can see. So he, he likes to tell me that this is an, uh, he sets it up so that his is a new paradigm and I'm the antiquated old guy. So um, you can see that. He's part of the problem still, so. <laughs> um, but the, the big thing about, uh, one, one thing that really triggered my mind is that when I was doing um, art history, there was, I read a remark by Leon Battista Alberti, and he, he had lots of things to say about many topics, architecture, painting, and he said um, in cultural terms that culture can only do well in warm climates. And what he meant then in the 1500s or late 1400s was that Italy was a much better place to have culture than those northern places like Germany and particularly um, Belgium and France um, and Holland in particular because they're too cold. And I thought that was a really, really interesting thing because when you think about it in Australia, it's almost the reverse. First of all, we're too hot to culture and then if you get to Brisbane, it's even far too hot and sweaty. So that was the impetus behind it, just to say, well, why is 
and the other thing is, it wasn't just architecture, it had literature in it, it had museums and stuff. So it was across a whole range of fields, and particularly architecture, where they dealt with this thing for a long time, but no one had even talked about it much. In fact, the architects never had, and I was surprised there was no study of Carl Langer or even Subtropolis. There was monographs from certain architects, but nothing in particular about what they were doing. So that was really the impetus for this um, what Tim calls heat positivity. So it was really just this taking the Alberti line about culture and how that actually turned around from the Renaissance to being a bad thing and that, that had sort of been ingrained in Brisbane and it was just an idea to try and turn that around and look at that proposition while people were always apologising. But what that means is there's things that go under you don't notice the things that are happening in the way. So that, that was the positivity side of it. Alberti also said, if you have a dinner party, you should always have nine people. So I just thought that's the other thing I remembered. So. <laughs> <laughs> Undergraduate art history, very instructive. Um, Tim, would you like to pick up on this issue and explain also why you've used the particular words of your title? Uh, the why did you particularly use Pyrocene rather than Anthropocene? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, thanks so much. Um, so, yeah, thank you as well to Andrew for his um, framing there. And certainly, um, I guess if I can touch briefly on sort of sweat, um, I guess the why it was interesting for us to kind of reflect on the significance of the text now is that it's, it's 10 years since the publication was um, released by the Institute of Modern Art. Um, and during the development of the show, I was kind of like, I was reading the text and reflecting on in the context of um, Black Summer, Bushfire, um, if we could still look at kind of um, heat and sort of um, its influence on cultural production in kind of in a, in a positive, seemingly positive sense. Um, and it struck me that this was kind of an interesting opportunity for us to kind of look at what is happening to cultural production in this state at the moment um, and to survey contemporary Queensland art. So the show was really kind of an outcome of that desire. Um, as part of kind of the research into the show, uh, there was some obvious engagement with um, academic kind of language around um, the climate and around global warming. And the Anthropocene is, of course, a term which has reached kind of like peak um, sort of uh, cultural kind of impact. And I think it's also a term which has been kind of heavily disputed in literature. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a laboured term. It's um, and it's one that has sort of um, bred a whole manner of kind of separate ways to kind of um, understand what's um, happening. Um, there's uh, actually quite an amusing article in um, Bruno Latour's latest kind of collection, Critical Zones, which actually identifies around a hundred variations on the Anthropocene as, as alternative ways for us to talk about the present geological epoch that we are living in. Um, so for me it seemed like the Anthropocene was something which had kind of um, had become a little bit tired and it was in the context of at least Black Summer um, in uh, mass media there were conversations that were happening around this term pyrocene which is one that uh, the fire historian, the American fire historian Stephen Pine talks about 
And the Pliocene is, um, again, a variation on the Anthropocene, but it's one that recognizes that um, the impact of kind of global warming and um, our burning of, of fossilized landscapes um, has increased and encouraged um, the, uh, the climate emergency and that um, how it's manifesting increasingly is in fire. Um, so I think it was one that was really born of kind of um, the experiences of Black Summer and the one that seemed kind of appropriate. Um, so in the conversations with the artists it was, you know, how do you feel around feeling, uh, how do you feel about climate threat? How does that influence your practice? And if you were to kind of respond to this feeling of kind of foreboding towards the environment on a local level, um, you know, how would you engage with that in your work? And how can, how can art um, engage with, you know, themes of such sort of scale and such significance? Um, so those were sort of, I guess, the impetus, uh, that was the impetus behind uh, the show and sort of its implication in Paris. That allows a very neat segue across to Shari, whose um, essay is actually about, the, um, which describes the curtain that divides you by Jemima Wyman. Uh, your essay is particularly looking at uh, how, how artists, if you like, are able to influence public debate and thinking about the spectator. Could you tell us a bit about that argument? Remember, you've got to buy the book as well. She's not summarising it accurately. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I had a couple of departure points for, the, for thinking about the spectator in the essay, but I just come off the back of a long, kind of rather large research project, and so it's sort of a nice kind of time to be kind of casting around, kind of, kind of tapping back into other conversations that are taking place. And um, there's one particular conversation that I, you know, that's taking place in philosophy um, with object-oriented ontology or speculative realism or Jane, um, Jane Bennett's um, vibrant materialism. Some of you might have heard of these terms. But what, um, what this kind of, I guess, these conversations are kind of doing, broadly speaking, is they're kind of bracketing, they're thinking about the object, and they're kind of, I guess, bracketing the subject, or this, you know, in artistic terms, what we'd call a spectator. And in light of the climate emergency, I kind of take great umbrage to this, because I actually think it's a time when we, we actually need to, not be bracketed, and we actually need to kind of step up and engage. Um, so that's, like, I guess, kind of some of the, the, the conversations I'm particularly interested in at the, at the moment. And then when you start looking back through arts history and thinking about what type, or asking the question, what types of models of spectatorship do, have we got to work with? It tends to kind of boil down to this kind of very kind of, you know, active-passive binary. We have active spectators, we have passive spectators, and that's about it. And so it just didn't seem to, doesn't seem enough to me. I think we have to kind of rethink, in light of the climate emergency, what the, what the, what that role of the spectator, the subject, needs to kind of step up and do. So, that. excellent. Andrew, or um, going back to you around these issues, how do you, uh, how would you articulate some of the, for example, some of you may be aware, Andrew's Bauhaus show is on at Museum of Brisbane, and one of the um, reconstructions is of uh, Carl Langer's sun chart. 
how would you think about that vis-a-vis -vis this broader question that um, of a climate emergency? Do you see that as something that he at least began to ask the questions about climate? Like, how would you see that kind of earlier effort vis-a-vis -vis, um, artists' effort equally now to broach these kinds of issues? He's made it, uh, wrote that publication during, he came in he wrote it during World War II, and um, in architectural discourse for a long time it was seen as anti the Queenslander. But actually, if you look at it, taking away the form of it, because it is flat, a slab on ground, it's like, um, so it takes the Queenslander down, that's funny because his wife is complaining about steps all the time and the heat and, um, he looked at the Queenslander and keeps all the, uh, the, I guess you'd say, the conceptual formats of the play between inside and outside, light, heat, but finds a different form to do it. And one of his main criticisms of the Queenslander was that if it's facing northeast, wherever that is, uh, anyway, um, it's, it works quite well. The flow of air tends to go through and go through the right, and the light for time of day. The problem is they're all built to the street line, so you might have the front corner, like in our homes, which gets a lot of uh, uh, airflow, but the rest of the three quarters of it doesn't. So he arranged things that are permeable based on where they were according to the street. So it, it, it could be due west, it could be east, you could, so you'd have variable um, things. So it was a, I see it as an attempt to reinvent the Queenslander idiom through different means but making it more permeable according to the placement uh, on the block. So it, um, he also included in that uh, an ideal um, village of one to 2,000 inhabitants and it never got off the ground because people said, oh, it was really stupid because it was flat. Um, the cars were all around the perimeter and you had parkland and medium density housing and a shopping centre in the middle and the playground so that you could walk it from every um, part of it within 10 minutes. And um, first of all, people said, well, it's bad because Brisbane's hilly. Two, the, the, the cars are on the outside, and of course what happens is the whole city gets worked around cars. But it's interesting when you think about it now because the heat bowl effect of Australian cities where they're just going out further and further and further, that would have been some model where you have maximised um, the park space and minimise the built space and centralise things. You could have done that many, many times over. And I think that's one thing that's... There are always things buried in history that were never realised, and I think that's an interesting one to really look at. Moving across to Tim, uh, and one of the essays, I know uh, you, you don't want to necessarily speak for Kevin O'Brien and his um, account of a fire, what is the expression? Fire accepting structure. But could you briefly just indicate how that might intersect with some of these older ideas about town planning? Because obviously this is a conception of architecture that's more, again, more responsive to the environment. 
Thank you. Um, yeah, as Sue said, um, yeah, in lieu of um, Kevin's pre presence today, I, I, I don't necessarily want to speak on behalf of Kevin, but um, and I would encourage everyone, <laughs> again, finding any opportunity to plug the book, but um, I do, do encourage you to read Kevin and um, Rachel O'Reilly's discussion in the catalogue, because it is a really rewarding one, and I think in the context of, of what Andrew was saying, um, one of Kevin's points in the text, which I found particularly insightful, was around um, Torrens' title and um, the legal structures of how we demarcate land ownership in this country um, and the problematics of that. Um, uh, so, and in that, Kevin sort of says, um, you know, with land ownership comes this um, this dispersal of kind of responsibility around caring for land. Um, and boundaries that are set up by land ownership um, bring in kind of, kind of troubling situations around um, fires, natural presence in the landscape, and, um, and also the sort of the illegality of, of permanent settlement um, in the terms of a settler state's presence in this place. Um, so Kevin's argument is, um, you know, and I'm yeah, paraphrasing here is, that um, perhaps there needs to be important amendments to the sort of the National Construction Code and to um, you know land ownership that kind of recognises that um, instead of building fire-resistant structures or fire-resilient structures, that we need to be thinking about fire-accepting structures, structures that recognise that um, you know that we aren't sort of at the centre of uh, or at the top of some sort of hierarchy that there are um, natural and important processes um, to this place and that um, structures shouldn't be sort of, um, you know, d shouldn't dominate those spaces. They should understand it and, and welcome um, a monthly presence of fire. Um, and he kind of goes on to sort of say, perhaps um, he could frame it uh, around the idea of camping as an impermanent way to live on um, on land um, that kind of respects this need for um, movement. Um, so that's sort of uh, a kind of a provocation and certainly one that um, is, um, he recognises in the text as kind of requiring a lot for a change like that to take place, but it's certainly one that's um, interesting in um, an understanding of kind of other architectural histories um, from a sort of a settler state perspective. So quite a utopian vision. Um, going back to vision, <laughs> Shari, uh, if we're sort of moving between art and architecture here and the different roles. I guess with architecture, we're expecting something more practical in terms of a solution. What do you think about that utopian part of art? Like the, the idea of, I guess, very avant-garde idea to link back to Andrew's modernist conception. But that idea of a spectator being influenced, I guess, is very much an avant-garde idea to some extent. Yeah, I, I think so. And it's interesting when we're kind of casting around, looking or asking, you know, what, what, what type of spectator do we need? It's actually interesting the draw back to the modernist avant-garde. Um, so, Bertolt Brecht, um, um, offer, you know, have, have offered and continue to offer quite compelling models of spectatorship, but also 
reasonably problematic as well. So for me, um, Brecht had theorised the theatre or the audience of the theatre as being kind of, you know, they needed to be woken up and shaken out of their complacency, which is quite hierarchical and almost patronising kind of perspective of the, of the audience. Um, Arto, I found myself last year being very drawn to Arto's writing because he wrote this um, incredibly rich essay on theatre and the plague. So obviously in 2020 it was you know, quite made quite compelling reading. Um, but I think that that's that perhaps you know he's arguing for this whole of disruption for, through the whole of society, which I think we all kind of experienced last year. Is is a again an interesting and kind of you know, kind of perhaps quite timely model to go back and rethink and revisit. Theatre models in this instance, obviously, it's what's, what's quite intriguing about your essay, Shari. Again, you have to buy the book. That uh, it's Brecht and Artaud that you're using, not um, you're not using film theorists, which is most of us that went through art history in the when did we go? 80s? God, was it earlier? Um, tended to read film theory. We didn't read. Um, we, you know, we didn't read Brecht and Arto so much so. I mean, I guess we were aware of Brecht um, as a, a political thinker. Um, what do you, what, who, whose models of an engaged spectator would you think would be useful in terms of thinking about all the emergencies, I guess, that surround us, Andrew? as the historian. I just want to know what Shari's, when she breaks down the active-passive binary, what do you come up with? <laughs> I'll get back to you in about five years. Oh, <laughs> I thought I'd read your essay and I'd find out. <laughs> Or an enmeshment of the two, maybe. But isn't this interesting? Because you even got freed with theatricality and absorption. One of them's good. And the other's bad. The other's bad, but one's really actively active, focused. The other one's multimedia and dispersed and distracted. Shari does have freedom. Freed in her essay. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, but I certainly have something much longer that goes back through the intellectual history, but also back to Kant and the, you know, the, the disinterested kind of idea of the disinterested kind of viewer or spectator. So I think it's, um, it's, it actually has a much longer history that reaches back. What's interesting, isn't it, in terms of this is it's moved to the spectator instead of, like the artist, generally speaking, it was the onus was on the artist to educate us all. And I guess that's the critique of Brecht, that it's quite condescending. So to sort of flip it round and think, well, can art, how can art engage us deeply? And it's interesting then what, you know, what models? What models? Um, I guess, sorry to interrupt. Um, <laughs> okay, good. Um, I guess um, hearing um, this conversation is just making me think a little bit about um, Anne Wallace's painting behind us um, here, because I think it does say something interesting around kind of the spectator and um, a sense of sort of desensitization towards um, these subjects. And um, in the 
in the book there is um, an engagement in my essay with this idea of the sublime as this ugly feeling of um, that Shan Guy talks about of um, you know a feeling of being stupefied and kind of overwhelmed by um, what we see before us in the world and I think that was because Anne's painting was kind of one of the earlier works in the show and there was a lot of commissions, it was one that I ended up spending a lot of time with and it it sort of remains, I think, kind of a keystone in the whole sort of feeling spectrum of, um, of the project is this sense of sort of distance. Um, and it's one that I think many of us recognise um, and it's something that Shari touches on in the beginning of her essay around so often these experiences of climate emergency are somewhere else um, and and then that somewhere else was now here and um, and it's and it's startling but it's it remains interesting to me how um, despite all of our kind of um, engagement and understanding and sensitivity to our to our senses as people who are interested in art and culture um, in the face of events like that, trying to kind of comprehend or engage with it is difficult. Um, and so that was kind of an interesting aspect for me in the show was to ask, can and how does art um, reflect a subject when it is increasingly beyond um, the scale of sort of our, of our senses? Um, and certainly there's kind of connections with that to kind of the writing of TJ Demos and you know Demos talks around um, increasingly trying to kind of capture an image of climate disaster is 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 impossible um, and that's why we're increasingly seeing aerial kind of based photography data visualizations because um, we constantly want to try to make sense of the world but the mechanisms for to do that are kind of um, failing us, perhaps, and that our senses are also um, so overwhelmed. And there's something in Anne's painting that, for me, talks about this sort of difficulty. Yeah. Andrew, have you got an earlier modernist account? Because oh. I was thinking sublime is what you're describing. Well, yeah, I just said that this is, no, that oh. this is sublime. <laughs> um, you know, the thing you can't actually capture, but you still seek to capture it. and that, well, not Kant didn't invent that, but he talked about it quite. It's the only thing that is interested is a really hard word in English because it just sounds like you're uninterested, but it actually means you you're looking at a representation, you know it's a representation, you treat it as such. I mean, you're not going to eat it or something. You know, it's a different um, model. But the his the thing I always found his great definition was that we liked playing with representation and when we it's a thing that we inherently like to do and um, it's the one thing with the arts that you can't anchor it in a determinate concept so you can't say okay here are all these works and Tim will say they equal X but someone else can come along and say well there's also X but plus Y aspect of it and actually that's the determination of a good work in one in this exhibition, it could be perfectly apt, but you take it and put it in another exhibition, and it could work in a different context, maybe not totally different, but 
quite different and you're able to say other things about it. And so that's what he means by that, it's unable to be determined. And other things you do want to be determined. So if you go to your mechanic and your car doesn't work and you say, oh, that's an aesthetic creation, it still doesn't work, you don't tend to say, oh, that's great, I love that. Yeah. You say, <laughs> we tend to have very determinate about certain things and other things we allow to be indeterminate and that's what he thinks is the aesthetic sphere. So in a way, whether that's passive or... It's already sort of active in a funny way. Well, in Kant, the sublime is where your imagination stretches and then fails, in effect. Like, this, I'm trying to remember, it was too sublime. There's the dynamic and the mathematical. Uh, one is where you stretch to try and understand the concept and, and the pleasure is in this stretching, supposedly, like an intellectual. So it is a kind of an account of a spectator, but it can be nature or art. Mm. That, so the two were beautiful and sublime and both did have a, a kind of an account of the feeling of the subject. So one is, you know, pleasure in the beautiful and the other is awe in the sublime, which I guess are some ways of starting to think about these sorts of issues that feel like they're beyond comprehension. You were using Shan Nai, I guess hers is more, when she's borrowing sublime as definitely, well. Definitely, you want to talk more about Harry? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was worried you're going to... Oh, okay. um, I was worried that you were going to ask me to um, respond to um, Kant, but um, uh, uh, I'm not going to stretch. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate everyone else's uh, you know expertise on this front. Um, yeah, Shanagai, I think was it was interesting because I was kind of trying to find um, a, an articulation of um, of a feeling which does feel. Um, more relevant to this moment and in um, the guy's account it isn't um, it isn't simply or anymore there's a sense of kind of inurement or um, even kind of banality to kind of images of um, you know shocking kind of subjects so um, the interest was certainly um, around sort of like an increasing desensitization and um, yeah, and, and for that reason they are, you know, in her words, ugly feelings because they're not necessarily um, things that we want to admit about ourselves, that we are feeling, that we feel removed or that we feel um, uh, unaffected by. Um, and that's not necessarily down to the individual. I think, you know, we are products of, of a society and of um, particular um, structures. Um, and this is kind of part of the point as well of this central space is um, an engagement with the sort of various forces that sort of mediate our looking and our understanding and our responses to the world. And um, that might be um, influenced by language or by um, cinema um, or, um, you know, uh, psychological kind of um, uh, pressures. Um, but there's also kind of um, very positive mediations and, um, and so that aspect of kind of recognizing um, indigenous cultural knowledge towards um, uh, cultural fire and its application here and recognizing that these subjects are culturally relative was also important so um, it's 
um, easy for me to talk about, you know, feelings of desensitization, but that certainly comes from, you know, my particular point of view. Um, but it was always critical in this show to also um, recognize that it was, um, you know, that we each have differing relationships and understandings with um, this situation. We're all in it together, but um, we can each bring different perspectives to it. Did you want to talk a bit about um, compassion fatigue as a possible thing that you were thinking of vis-a-vis -vis this? Like a, a lot of what you were saying strikes me as in that domain, how do you get people interested in something? Or I think uh, Shari's essay certainly gets you gesture towards that difficulty in representing particularly, don't you? Maybe, maybe you could talk a bit more about that and then I'll zoom on you. <laughs> I think um, I think just that that you know climate it, it the, the climate is actually something that it's hard to represent you know in terms of we visualize it through graphs and data and, and it's hard to get emotional or kind of empathetic to, with a graph it, you know it just doesn't well, it gets us so far I guess um, so you, you are kind of I guess thinking about something that that is very evasive to being represented. Um, and that's a, that, you know that's kind of a, a, again a, I guess a, <laughs> a segue into a kind of another type of discourse. We've touched on the sublime, but the other type of discourse that lends itself quite well to this is, is trauma, which again the event is unrepresentable. We can only understand it belatedly, but in that sense, that doesn't really help us because <laughs> we can't understand the climate emergency in the future. We have to. You know, in terms of that temporal kind of temporality, we need to understand it now. What did you think basically we represent this unrepresentative as someone who has created a show that in a way is about representation? The unrepresentative. Sure. Um, I guess uh, on that kind of comment of uh, Shai's around trauma, um, as much as I can talk about you know, Anne's depiction as kind of having this sort of distanced relationship, I think it does also speak to that kind of, that latency or that kind of, that lag of um, trauma um, that Freud talks about, I think, I, might, I don't know. Okay, um, yes, that you, yeah, that, that, that in the moment we are kind of all kind of um, sort of numb subjects in that period and and only afterwards kind of does kind of meaning come but um so that was certainly of interest to me in, in relation to Anne's work and I think there is a sense of kind of um presentness that you're in that moment of kind of seeing but not feeling or understanding um but certainly on the other hand um Shari's point around um data and and graphs and um that's why it was really interesting for me to work with Judy Watson um, as part of this show, and we can see one of Judy's works just here to Shari's um, uh, side. Uh, and for me, the kind of, and I touched on this in the, fir in the um, first kind of public programs on the opening, but um, Judy you know, talks and she said that it, it, they're, they're not necessarily her words, but she's, she's talked about feeling as being a way for um, people to kind of start to think. And I think that's why so often we see kind of cold mechanisms of science kind of represented in her work, but they're 
described through colour and through expression. And if you find a way to kind of um, draw people in and and um, encourage them to start kind of thinking um, through feeling, then um, that might be an approach to kind of start to encourage a more active spectator. Um, and the onus is then not so much um, only on the artists to affect change, but um, that we also kind of encourage the, the viewer to kind of participate um, more, um, yeah, more closely. And that, I guess that comes back to, to your point, Sue. I'm gonna flip the table here. Uh, <laughs> on uh, your point in um, anger and repair in relation to Judy's work and this kind of, um, I think you use the term of like a poison dart or something that it's, um, that it kind of gets past sort of defense, your defenses and it's sort of, you are drawn in by beauty and you're drawn in by an engagement with aesthetics. And once you're there, meaning and impact start to kind of affect, you know, influence you. So and I, uh, sort of a, a separate point, I guess, that was, um, that I've been thinking about. So that's, yeah, there are again, sort of different ways to kind of engage with kind of, um, feeling a lack of feeling but also despite that feelings central um role and, and purpose in the context of trying to engage with this subject um i just want to say um that both those points i just want to say it, it, it is that tricky thing of art trying to represent something that we as finite human beings can't necessarily experience and you're right there I mean, a great example of heat positivity that we can't escape is that we're in a particular place in a solar system where we're close enough to the sun, not too far away from the sun, and that's a very, that's a heat positiveness, and that heat positiveness allows this microphone to work for us to be alive, for plants to function, and it's a sort of precarious thing, but the numbers are really hard to explain. Like the sun loses or expels six million tons of its mass per second, right? That allows us to be alive. And yet it's an incredibly amazing number. So an elephant is six tons, just to make it easier. That's 833,000 elephants leaving the sun every second. Right. And you can see where this is leading. We're all doomed, right? Because the sun will eventually expel everything. And what happens when it expels everything? They don't disappear and all becomes dark and quiet and cold. It actually expands and then Mercury will be absorbed and Venus will be absorbed and then the Earth will be called a red giant and then it will explode. So it will be swallowed up, right? We've only got five to six million years left, right? So it's the top the, the clock is ticking yeah? so this makes tim's things more urgent okay but the thing is no species on earth has lived that long so it's more than likely we'll be long gone and there'll be some other species that come along we're the first species that have ever dug below the ground to excavate other cultures we've got archaeology but also People are exploring the Devonian extinction, which is further down. And so if another culture comes along, it'd be interesting to know whether they'll just sit here and go, oh, this is nice, we like this. And nobody's here, so it's all great. And what if they dig down and they see what we've done? I don't know, what would they make of it? 
that's, that's the thing about human experience of finitude and art trying to somehow represent those processes that we just can't experience. Yeah. They come back. Not many species, yeah, not many past extinctions have come back yet. We might be the first, but... I feel, I guess I feel somewhat... Um, guilty because I feel like each of these panels comes back to some sort of ominous and bleak conclusion, um, including the last one when I ended by remarking that time comes for all of us and everyone groaned. <laughs> so um, thank you, Andrew, for talking about heat death from sun. So uh, yeah, and those elephants. Um, well, see, that's a thought experiment. We can think these things that we can't experience, like what happens after us. The big thing is that humans think they'll control things, so we'll go to find another planet. It's most likely it won't happen. We won't get there. And we, sh we, should have in we should have invited a futurist on the panel today, but um, Andrew, you're doing it for us, yeah. <laughs> Wear many hats. Yeah. Don, don, don. Well, join me in thanking the panel for... Um <laughs>